the sins that weighed him down at the cross were outdone by the joy of those who would believe as a result. Would you turn to Romans chapter 5? The title of today's message is Amazing Grace. There probably aren't many words that Paul writes that you couldn't use that title, but that's the title for today's message. So much doctrine, so much theology, so much personal application of the gospel. In Romans chapter 5, we began in this chapter that since we have been justified by faith, since we have chosen to follow God's Son, we have peace with God. The peace of God, which Chris just explained, is for this life, to go through things in peace. The peace of God is satisfied in two ways, that the wrath of God was poured out on His Son on my behalf and in my response to that act of righteousness. Paul is going to magnify, I don't know that you can fully magnify, the grace of Jesus Christ, but we're going to magnify it today. We will never fully appreciate what grace actually is Um, but we can appreciate it more today. So Paul begins with that. We're justified by faith through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, and we talked about that Wednesday. I talk about it a lot. That is Jesus' full name in the New Testament. He is sovereign, king, and master. Lord, kurios is the Greek word. He is Jesus, savior, is what the Greek word means for that. And he is Christos, or he is Christ in English, the anointed one. We we receive, according to Paul, the anointed Savior as Lord. He comes to us as Lord. Then he becomes our Lord, Jesus Christ. He becomes our Master, Savior, anointed one. Let's pray before we begin our study today. Heavenly Father, help us as as far as your Spirit can take our minds to appreciate the grace of God described in the Word of God by the Apostle Paul who is speaking the words of Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we have these theological pillars. We start with We are saved and justified by faith. Um, We are in verse 12. We're taken back to Genesis where sin enters the world through an individual named Adam. And death comes through sin. 6,136 years ago, according to our Bible, Adam was created. Adam was commanded, I give you free will. You can eat anything in this garden but I command you not to eat of this tree or you will surely die. That act of disobedience, Paul is going to define for us today, infected the entire human race with sin. And what we are focused on secondarily is how significantly Adam infected the world with sin and primarily how extensive the grace is that overcomes that sin. So we begin our study today in verse 15 of Romans chapter 5, where we left off a couple of weeks ago. In verse 15, after talking about Adam in verses 12 through 14, um, that sin came into the world through Adam, that sin existed between Adam and Moses, and that the law was put in place by Moses so that we could better understand our sin and how extensive it is. Verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass. For the many died by the trespass of the one man. How much more did the God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? They are, we're going to have parallels between Adam and Jesus, between sin entering the world and by sin being defeated. But he tells us from the get-go that they're not like each other. Sin is extensive. 
It causes death in every one of us. It puts condemnation into our lives. But the magnificence of grace cannot be compared to the extent of sin, which is extensive. It's kind of like if, if I asked you, who is, who is the enemy rival of God? If you said Satan, you would be wrong. He has no rival. Satan is the rival of Michael and Gabriel. All three of them were created by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has no rival. There is really nothing to compare grace to. Paul is going to explain it. But he's also going to explain to us the extent of sin and how grace overcomes it. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1 as John the Baptist is speaking theologically on the behalf of Jesus Christ as he sees him for the first time. So in the opening of the Gospel of John, John the Apostle takes us to Genesis 1.1. In 1 John 1, he takes us to John 1. And in John 1, he takes us to Genesis 1. And he says, in the beginning was the Word. At this point, other than it's capitalized, we don't know what that means. But then he goes on, the Word was with God. So it was someone with God. And then it says the word was God. So John starts with a theological, this is what you need to know first. Jesus Christ is God. So he is the word in verse 1. He is the one who created all things. Everything you see, everything you touch, everything in heaven, everything on earth was created by the word of God, who is the son of God, who is God. He wants us to know that in the opening verses. And then he goes on, I think, in verse 5 to say, In him was light, and that light, life, and that life was the light of all mankind. That's the apostle John speaking. So whenever you see the name John in the gospel of John, it's John the Baptist. So John the Apostle says the Word of God is God. He's the creator of all things, and he's always been. That's the start. When we pick it up in verse 14, John the Baptist is speaking. The Word, the one we just focused on in the opening five verses, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Word didn't begin when he became flesh. That's important. There's in um, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, unto you a child is born. The word became flesh. But then he says, unto you a son is given. Not born, not beginning. The son of God, appointed by God, becomes flesh. He doesn't begin, he becomes flesh. So John the Baptist says the word became flesh, or John the Apostle is speaking, I'm sorry, right here. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. He is, according to Colossians 1.17, everything in heaven and on earth the galaxies down to the smallest cell on planet Earth, all of the stars, all of the galaxies, all of the universes, everything in heaven, including the throne that the Father sits on, was created by Jesus Christ. And John is explaining to us here, it goes on in Colossians 1.17, that everything was created in him before he spoke it out. So everything in all the galaxies was created in Christ. And it's for him. And it's by him. And then it says, in Christ, all things hold together. I don't know how I would visualize this or even explain it. But if he relaxed, everything in the galaxies would collapse. He is literally sustaining all things within himself. And John says that the within Christ is full of grace and truth. So he says to Pilate, 
The reason I came into the world was to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. That's why Jesus came. He came to testify to the truth, and he is filled with truth. All the manifold wisdom of God, Colossians 1, is in the Son. Wisdom, Proverbs tells us, James tells us, the Bible tells us, was created as the first work of God's creation. All of that wisdom was created in Christ so that when he spoke, his wisdom came out. John is telling us here that he is full of grace and truth. I'm going to think of some pictures that won't be adequate. But when he takes all of my sin and covers it with his grace, he has no less grace. In other words, he never stops being full of grace. He is always inexhaustibly filled with grace. Verse 15, John testifies, this is John the Baptist, concerning him he cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. This is important theologically, who was born first? Jesus or John the Baptist? John the Baptist was born six months before Jesus. John the Baptist is telling us this is the one who's always been. He was before me, and therefore he must be magnified. Verse 16, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. John says his grace, the one who is full of grace, is inexhaustible, and he continuously gives it. So when we trust, when we say, Jesus, you are my Lord, I believe in what you did for me on the cross, I choose to follow you, his grace, according to 2 Peter chapter 1 and in other places, all of the grace for everything we will ever do is put in us so that when you go through something difficult tomorrow, when you suffer persecution, when you sing with joy and all of those things are through the power of grace and through your choice of obedience, grace replaces grace, grace replaces grace, grace replaces grace, grace replaces grace. He gives, that's hard to say, he gives you more and more and more and more. In other words, it's inexhaustible. And every time you tap into it, he gives you grace in, in place of the grace he's already given you. It is inexhaustible, verse 17 for the law was given through Moses. Paul will explain today why the law was given. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Drop down to verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him, John the Baptist, and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul will give us the doctrinal theology about that and what John is saying here, what John the Baptist speaking by the Holy Spirit is saying that what Adam did, he undoes. Is that good English? He undoes what Adam did. Look the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What he does is so extensive it's hard to speak about. As we turn back to Romans chapter 5 and Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul writes to Titus and says, The grace of God that gives salvation and offers it to all people has come. And the next verse he says that that grace teaches us to say no to godlessness. It teaches us to be obedient. Grace in place of grace. We're going to see by Paul today that we're called not to salvation, through salvation. We're called to obedience that comes through faith. So the grace in place of grace is if we accept that call, we are his forever. And in that call, every time we say no to ungodliness, it's actually grace teaching us. And whenever we say yes to Christ, it's actually by grace that we say that. And then in the next verse, Titus 2.13, he says, as we wait for the, the great God and Savior to return, 
our Lord Jesus Christ, our Master, Messiah, Savior. Back to Romans chapter 5 and verse 16. Paul is explaining further that we really can't compare something that we somewhat understand, the extent to Adam's sin infecting all of us, to grace, verse 16. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. So the concept that we somewhat grasp that is extensive, as soon as Adam sinned, every human being from then on is infected with sin. It doesn't seem like anything could be bigger than that. Paul says it's so much bigger that you can't compare the two. You can't say, oh, that happened and this happened, they're equals. No. Paul says that happened. The whole human race in the entire expanse of time of humanity is infected by one man's sin of disobeying a command. Then he says, Jesus, after billions and billions and billions of sin, with billions and billions of sins to come, paid full price in one act of obedience. He covered it all. The songs that we sang today, think about what those words mean. In John 3.18, people have this understanding that, that we will die, we will meet God, and then he will determine whether or not we're saved, that somehow we're condemned at the end. Um, they're, you know, one of the prayers that religion prays is pray for us now and at the hour of our death. Um, don't pray for me at my death. Pray that I will decide today. I won't pray for the hour of your death. I will pray for the hour that is now. Today is the day of your salvation, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. So when we look at this picture here, John 3.18, we're familiar with verse 16. Verse 18 says, Everyone who believes in him is not condemned. Do that now, John is saying. And then he says, Everyone who does not believe is condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one only Son. And in is a, an important word. We'll discuss that later. We are under condemnation already. We are freed from the condemnation by Christ, or we remain under condemnation. We are not children of God, as most of the world believes, until we believe in Jesus, um, John 1.12. We become children of God when we believe in Jesus Christ. So Paul is explaining, John is explaining that Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift, remember he says you can't compare the gift to the sin, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift overcomes the death. The death of Christ overcomes the need for my own death. So the wages of sin is death 100% of the time. What Jesus has effectively done is said, I've already died, I've already paid. Follow me and my death replaces yours. Your sins are replaced by my righteousness. John talks about this in 1 John chapter 3. He says, What love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when we see him, we'll be like him. That's the hope of glory that Paul started out with in this chapter, that suffering leads to, leads to perseverance. Perseverance develops character, and character leads us to hope, and hope never disappoints. The hope of the glory of God is that one day we will be like Jesus Christ. And John is amplifying that. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3, he says, everyone who has this hope purifies themselves. So a person's walk with Christ testifies that one day they will be like Christ because one day they gave themselves to Christ 
if we go in reverse in those verses. Verse 17 in Romans 5. For if by the trespass of one man, and it's a trespass, it's not just a sin, humanity was going to fall on direct disobedience. Paul makes clear that what happened in the garden, Adam was created before Eve. Adam fell into a deep sleep, and God took one of his ribs and made Eve. In between those two things, God said to Adam, I command you not to eat in the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So Eve, Paul says, was deceived. She was tricked by Satan. Adam simply sinned. He simply said to God's command, I'm going to disobey you. He directly disobeyed God. And that is when we get into the order of things in the home and in the church, points to that arena and that event. Um, But Paul says that um, if by the one trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more, he keeps telling us, you can't compare the two, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Turn a couple books to your right to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. As long as you're on your way there, we're going to look at a verse in chapter 8 and a verse in chapter 9. Second Corinthians, we'll read a verse in chapter 8 first as long as we're close. These are verses that define grace without using the word grace. So in chapter 8 and verse 9, Paul says in his, in his use of the word grace here, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, For your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty may become rich, rich in his grace, from the one who is full of grace and truth. Now look at this definition of grace in chapter 9 and verse 8. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. The purpose of grace is that I would live like Christ. The effects of grace are eternally saved, an heir of God, a child of the Father, a brother or sister to Christ. Those are effects of grace. The purpose of grace is that we would live like Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.15 He died so that those who live would no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them. Why did he come? To testify to the truth. Why did he die? So that we would live like him. Because living like him is what takes grace to the next person. It's not religion then. If we live like Christ, if we love people like he loves people, if we obey the Father like he obeys the Father, then we're not religion. We're in a relationship that changes lives, that is this abundant grace. Turn to Ephesians. Let's, let's actually go to 2 Peter in the interest of time. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. It's hard to just take one verse, but we're going to do it for our purposes today. And verse 3, 2 Peter 1, 3. He's defining the same thing that Paul just defined. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Another definition of grace. Peter is describing in 2 Peter chapter 1 that the moment you choose to follow Christ, the life that um, Chris referred to in Hebrews chapter 12 that is laid out before us. That in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, that the works he planned in advance for us to do, if we obeyed him, 
in every situation for the entirety of our life from meeting Christ, Peter is explaining that all of the grace is put in to exceed your needs in all of those situations. We never exhaust the grace of Christ and we never exhaust the grace that is put in us when we choose to follow Christ. There is more than enough grace to empower me to obey if I obey every time. As we turn back to Romans chapter 5, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is praying. And he, in his prayer, in chapter 3, he is praying at the end of, in verse 20, I think, of chapter 3, he who is able to do abundantly more than all we ask or imagine. That's this full of grace and truth person who has endowed us with more than enough grace. And if we imagined something that is, extends to the, the outer limits of my imagination, he is able to do immeasurably more than that. That's this grace that Peter and Paul are describing. That's why Paul saying in, in Romans chapter 5, you can't really compare grace to sin. Grace annihilates sin, but they're not equal rivals. There's not a struggle for grace to overcome sin. It easily overcomes sin. It is obedience from us that allows that grace, that resurrection power, as Paul would say in the book of Ephesians, to, to do the work that God wants it to do. Verse 18 in Romans 5 is an important verse. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification for all people. This is an important theological verse. Um, let's, let's look at what this is saying again, and we want to we see two more, more verses that say the same thing. Paul says, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. There's two things here that are being said. One is more easily understood. He offers it to everyone. Anyone that believes in limited atonement or that God had decided to save some, this verse makes no sense to them because his grace is offered to everyone. And this verse makes that clear. There is also justification that comes to everyone that Paul is talking about here. And we need scripture to help us understand that so that we don't misunderstand Romans 5.18. So turn, first of all, to 1 Timothy chapter 4, where he is instructing his primary disciple and he tells him the exact same truth. 1 Timothy chapter 4, and he adds to the end of the truth that is in Romans 5.18 so that we know what he means when he says justification for all people. Well, wait a minute, Jim. Does that mean everyone goes to heaven? No. Does it mean that they receive some justification for sin? Yes. What does that mean? The Bible helps us understand. So he says to Timothy, in verse 10 of chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. That is why we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of who? All people. Everyone saved? No. Especially those who, us who believe. What does that mean? We are reading all through Romans chapter 5 that what Adam did, Jesus undid. We have read in the Gospel of John that he takes away the sins of the world. God so loved the world. So how do you have an eternal relationship with God? You follow Jesus Christ. How do you have what Adam did undone? He did that at the cross. 
What does that effectively mean? You will not die for Adam's sin. Adam brought condemnation to who? Everyone. Jesus took original sin away at the cross. He undid what Adam did. No one will die for someone else's sin. This is significant in the world and in the country we live in. Infant baptism is a relationship to original sin. And that destroys the gospel. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.17, Christ Jesus did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with human wisdoms, lest the cross be emptied of its power. When a person believes that baptism helps them in their sin, they are emptying the cross of its power. They are saying, Jesus did this, and I will contribute in this way. And that, Paul says, is foolishness to the world, but to those of us who are being saved is the power of God. Let's look at one more verse in 1 John chapter 2. In verse 2, John is saying what Paul is saying in his letter to Timothy and his letter to the Romans. 1 John 2, 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. People that believe that Jesus will save some in his plan, that it's his plan that, that some can be saved and some can't be saved, say that, Jesus died and paid for those people's sin. All of these verses say one clear thing. He died for whose sin? The whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So, so Paul says that in Romans chapter 4, or 1 Timothy 4.10, that he's our savior and he's the justifier for the whole world. John says the same thing here. So the, the thing that we want to point out is that original sin is done, but Romans 3.23 is still true. For all have sinned. So no one is innocent, but no one is guilty because of Adam. They are guilty because of their own sins. Let's turn back to Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For just as through the disobedience of the many, or excuse me, just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many were made righteous. So the many, we will see multiple times. We saw it earlier in verse 15. The many means everyone. The offer is to everyone. So there are many on both sides. He is using language to make sure that the, the, the entire human race is covered with sin. The entire human race has the offer of grace. It's not withheld from anyone, and no one is un unneeding of it. Everyone needs it. Every person needs grace. Every person will either experience a heaven in the future or a hell, and without grace, without choosing Christ, he has nothing left to offer. He can only offer hell to people who refuse what he has given to them. So the the disobedience of Adam is overcome by the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ. Justification, I think I wrote in your notes, um, when it comes to righteousness, obedience never leaves the picture. So imputation happens. You don't have to know what that word means, 
But in Genesis 15, 6, we see Abraham believed God and God credited him with righteousness. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he says to us, Paul does, speaking for Jesus, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we can become the righteousness of God. So we read earlier that this one righteous act, doing right according to God, is what Jesus did on the cross. That one righteous act can undo and overwhelm and annihilate all of my sins if I believe in him. Once I believe in him, he takes all of the sin from my account and puts it on Jesus' account. God is omniscient, omnipresent, and not related to time. So everyone after the cross and everyone before the cross who would believe in Jesus Christ is an accumulation of sins that will be fully paid for. He takes the sins of everyone to the cross. He can wipe our accounts clean when we believe. And at that moment, he is able to take the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and put it on my account so that when I stand before the Father, he sees Christ. Christ in me and me in Christ means that I am clothed with Christ. The Father who cannot be in the presence of sin can be in the presence of his Son because his Son is perfectly righteous. The only way I can be in the presence of the Father is to be in his Son. Righteousness to my account, sin to his account. The life I should have lived, he lived. The death I should have died, he died. And he is willing to take those two things and exchange them for my sin. And the grace that he will give me there will exceed my need for grace forever. That's the exchange that is made when we believe in Jesus Christ. Obedience comes in both directions when a person is saved. We are saved by grace and not by works. Turn to Romans chapter 16, where Paul is going to repeat what he said in Romans chapter 1 and verse 5. When Paul opens this masterpiece of the gospel called the book of Romans, after he gives his address, he says in Romans chapter 1 verse 5, that he as an apostle was sent to call Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith. This is an interesting question, and I, and I try not to confuse you. Does faith save you? Faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of God, we will learn in chapter 10 and verse 17. As soon as you hear the truth about Jesus Christ, you are endowed with faith. Having faith doesn't save you. Using faith to honor Jesus as Lord and Savior saves you. So Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, we're not called to faith. We're called to obedience that comes through faith and from faith. Faith, according to 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, produces work. That faith saves. The works don't save you, but the call is obedience. So Jesus, just as through the one man's disobedience, the one man Jesus Christ's obedience, an act of obedience through Jesus Christ, offers us salvation. An act of obedience by me, I acknowledge you as Lord, you are my master, you are my savior, projecting my faith to Christ saves me. It is never the amount of faith that saves anyone. You can be sure that Allah will save you. You can be 100% sure. You can feel weak and be sure about Jesus Christ and you are saved. 
you can be like the man who says, Lord, I do believe, but forgive me for my unbelief. In other words, this is a struggle for me, but I believe in you, he says to Jesus, born again. So Paul is defining that here in the book of Romans. In 1 Corinthians 7.19, Paul says, it is obeying his commands that matter. First command, believe in my son. Make him your Lord. Trust in what he did on the cross and when he rose from the dead. James is a difficult book. Martin Luther took it out of his Bible because he said it conflicted the gospel. It doesn't conflict the gospel. He uses Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and he was credited with righteousness. And he says about Abraham, he says that Abraham made his faith complete when he obeyed. He said, so you see that his obedience completed his faith. He goes on to say that faith without obedience is what? Dead. That's not a different gospel. That's Jesus' half-brother explaining to the Jews how they need to follow Christ and how they need to obey him. Um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9, you don't need to turn there, but you can write it down and look it up later. It says that they turn from idols, repentance, to serving Christ, obedience. You can believe that everything in God's word is true and be lost. One of the problems we have in America and why the, why the church is so evilly, easily set off course is because belie people believe that it's true. Believing that it's true doesn't save you. If you believe that is true, you might pray a prayer. You might go to church. You might read your Bible. If you believe in the truth, you will live for Jesus Christ. So an act of obedience saved us, and in Romans 16 and verse 25, now to him, Jesus Christ, who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, as the gospel of Jesus Christ entrusted to the pen of the Apostle Paul, the message I have proclaimed about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. There are far more people that believe that eating healthy and exercise is a good thing. People that believe in being healthy exercise and eat right. There are a lot of people who believe that Jesus died, that he's the savior of the world, that I can choose when to follow him and when not to follow him. Paul says, the initial call is obedience that comes from faith. Faith comes from hearing. Obedience comes from surrender. So there are a lot of people who have prayed a prayer. There are a lot of people who go to church. There are a lot of people like the rich man who say, this is true. I believe Pilate believed Jesus was who he said he was. In John chapter 2 and about verse 23, it says that many people believed. And the next verse, it says Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in them. Same Greek word for both. They believed in him. It's true. He's the one. He didn't believe in them because they wouldn't make him Lord and Master. Let's go back to Romans chapter 5, verse 20. 
Romans 5 and verse 20. We'll read the last two verses. We read about the law earlier. Here's the purpose of the law. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the, the last word in the chapter is our Lord. Is he your Lord? Well, he's my Savior. They're inseparable. I believe he died for me. I believe I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to get back to what I was doing. That's not what he's talking about. Jesus, Savior, Christ, anointed one, is our Lord. He's our master. He's our king. He has made the decisions for us. We will discover them and we will obey them. I don't know what this book says, but I know it's true and I know it's for me and I will obey it. Lord, master, king. That's what kurios means in the Greek. So Paul is saying here that the law was brought in, and he uses this in his own testimony in chapter 7. Once we look at the extents of the law, I think, okay, I've done a couple things wrong. Um, I need to be forgiven by Jesus Christ. Then the law is put in place, and you're like, oh my goodness. I've been sinning profusely. Does grace still cover it? Absolutely. Absolutely when we realize how much we need a Savior, we realize more how great grace is. So Paul says, when the law comes and it shows us how sinful we really are, then we turn to Jesus and say, how awesome is your amazing grace? How amazing is it that you would do that for me? Um, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul is writing the resurrection chapter in the Bible which, as I say repeatedly, is the, is the most important miracle and most important belief, according to Paul, at the beginning of this chapter. If Jesus dies, my sins are paid for. If he goes to hell, he goes in my place. If it stops there, I never am born again. He resurrects from the dead, which means that I can resurrect from the dead and I can have the eternal life and the body that is just like his, 1 John 3, 2. And we pick it up here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 42. He puts the rapture, the hope of the glory of God, Titus 2 and verse 13 I referred to earlier, and he puts them together in comparing Adam, human, and Jesus spiritual verse 42 so it will be as the resurrection of the dead the body is sown perishable it is raised imperishable it is sown in dishonor it is raised in glory it is sown in weakness it is raised in power it is sown a natural body it is raised a spiritual body this is all talking about the rapture. This is where Paul says repeatedly, and John says that at the rapture, we will meet with Jesus Christ on the life we have lived as a believer, and we will be given bodies that are like Jesus Christ's glorified body. We die natural. We raise spiritual. We die blemished and sinful and decaying, and we have a spiritual, supernatural eternal, lasting, sinless body. And he is going to take us back to Adam, as he's talking about in Romans 5, to explain this. Verse 45, so it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. Understand that in the country that, as far as I know of, that has taken the lives of more babies than probably any country in history, which is my country. When they go in there, that from the moment of conception, according to the Bible, there is 
a being, a personality, a spirit, a soul created in the image of God that is eternal. As soon as the sperm meets the egg, there is a living being that will be spiritually alive forever. And if we went to Psalms, we would learn that Jesus went in that womb and put that baby together. So Paul is saying here, the conception of a human being, two human beings creating another human being comes first. And as soon as that happens, a spirit is put in, a soul is put in, a conscience, a personality, a uniqueness to all other beings is immediately put in there. And he's giving us the order and he's taking us back to the rapture looking forward. The spiritual, verse 46, did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. We have the same elements in our body as the dirt does. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. Humanity, flesh, bones, this tent that he calls it in 2 Corinthians 5. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. When we choose Christ, we are of God. Children born of God. We become full adopted children, which biblically doesn't mean that we're add-ons. It means that we're put in an equal position as far as father and son as Jesus Christ. We don't become God. We don't become God's son. But Paul explains this in Hebrews 2, that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Full adoption to Jesus Christ. This happens when we choose to follow Jesus Christ. We go from being a descendant of Adam, Genesis chapter 5 and verse 2, to a descendant of God, born of God. Verse 49, And just as we have been born in the image of the earthly man, so, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. 1 John 3, 2, We will be like Christ. Verse 50, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood, what you see right in front of me, you here, cannot enter the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit, or excuse me, yeah, the perishable inherit the imperishable. And now he's going to explain this transformation of the rapture to those who follow Christ. Listen, I tell you a mystery. Those verses are important. There is one person in the Bible that talks about the rapture. It's Paul. I should say that more accurately, only Paul teaches the rapture. It's never in the Old Testament. It's not in the Gospels. Peter, John, James, and Jude don't teach the rapture. Mystery, we just read that in Romans 16, verse 25, is something that was always in God, and now it's being revealed. It was always true, but no human beings know it. Peter and Paul explained that when Paul would write something like 1 Corinthians 15, 51, the angels would hover over him because they're wondering about what happens to the church. And Paul writes it down, and now the angels know. Verse 51, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, meaning we will not all die. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. Verse 52, in a flash... In a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Changed what? From perishable mortal bodies into imperishable Christ-like eternal bodies. Physical bodies with our spirit that like our spirit will last forever. Verse 53, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. Then the saying that Hosea first wrote that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up 
by victory. Praise God. So Nicodemus one day is kind of floating along the surface, hiding from the other Pharisees, and he says, we know that you're a teacher that comes from God, and Jesus says, you must be born again. Nicodemus says, how can I go back into my mother's womb? No, you must be born, and you must be born again. You must be born of both the flesh, because the flesh comes first, we just read, and then you must be born of the spirit, he says. You must follow me, is what he is saying. Paul is saying that once that happens, what we're reading in 1 Corinthians 15 is a done deal. When we get to Romans chapter 8, Paul will explain to us that before the creation of the world, his, his omniscience and foreknowledge allows him to see a saved person in the future in their glorified body. God sees fallen, sinful Christians in this world as in Christ in their glorified bodies now. So that should motivate us. That should want us to live for him. Verse 55, what, what do we say to death as Christ followers? Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, Romans 5, 12. And the power of sin is the law. It magnifies. It shows us how guilty we really are. But thanks be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when Paul talks theologically about these things, that name is important. He says, you must confess, Romans 10, 9, that he is Lord. He says, we already read today, and Paul says repeatedly that he comes to us as Lord. There is Romans, or first or Ephesians 4, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. He always puts things in order. Is he your Lord? Yes, but I don't know if he's my Savior. If he's your Lord, he is your Savior. If you say he's my Savior, but he's not my Lord, then he's neither. But if he is your Lord, he's your Lord, Savior, anointed one, and you will have a body like his one day. And nothing can change that. Verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It would be theologically incorrect as a picture for him to say, always give yourselves fully to Jesus. Because when we obey Christ, we obey him as Lord. He is sovereign over all creation, whether we believe in him or not. He is sovereign over me by my choice. So Paul is telling us all this amazing theological truth about the rapture in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye. We will not all die, but we'll all be changed. We will give up the perishable body. We will we'll have imperishable bodies. We're mortal human beings now. We will become immortal. Therefore, always give yourself fully to the Lord. He's not telling us about the rapture simply for our amazement. He's telling us about the rapture so that we will live for Jesus. And Paul says, you know that every time you do, you will not be disappointed. Faith is so critical because you can't come to God without faith. Faith's purpose is obedience to Jesus Christ. So Paul writes in Hebrews eleven six, 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And then he gives two important points. Number one, you must believe that he exists when you come to him. You must believe he is who he says he is. And then you must believe that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. 
Paul is telling us all this, he keeps saying, you can't compare grace to sin. Sin is awful, it's ugly, it's extensive. But when you look at grace, it overwhelms sin in every way. It would be, I, I just try to think of pictures to use it as ex examples. We had communion last week. If you took a cup and you're the only human being on earth and you went to the ocean and you took out a cup, grace would be the ocean left behind in your mind. Does that make any sense? That this inexhaustible grace, Paul says, is yours if you follow Jesus. So give yourself fully to the Lord. Live each day for Him. Everything that threatens the authority of Christ in my day is an idol, Paul says. So we turn from idols, 1 Thessalonians 1.9 to serving Jesus Christ. How do I know for sure? Well, the Bible says so. Believe the Bible. How do you experientially know for sure you're going to heaven? Well, I'm serving Jesus. Then you're his. If your life is truly lived for Jesus, there is no possible doubt of eternity. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son, Thank you for sending the one full of grace and truth. Thank you for the joy that we heard of today from Hebrews as Jesus, scarred and beaten and bruised, made his way to the cross. Thank you that he rose again. Thank you that undeservedly I can rise again because of what he did and my choice to follow him. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen.